Amen. Well, good morning. Hear the words, beloved. Toye lege. Toye lege. How many have heard that glorious phrase before? It means take up and read. This is the very call we proclaim from the pulpit every Lord's Day. Take up your Bibles. Take up and read. Now, some of you may know this phrase, toye lege, it became famous worldwide following the conversion of perhaps the most well-known theologian of the first 1,000 years of church history. Even as a very intelligent person, he was a man who lived a life of, of drunkenness and following after the lusts of the flesh. And one morning, coming home from a, a night of carousing, he was passing through a park in a hungover stupor. And as he was passing through the park, there was a collection of children playing there. And the game they were playing carried a refrain. It carried a song with it. And the children would, would yell in unison, Toye lege, toye lege. And at the very moment they cried out the refrain as they played, this man walked by a copy of the scriptures that had been placed there in the park. So hearing the words to take up and read, he went over to the scriptures and he opened it. And the pages fell to the book of Romans, the 13th chapter. And his drunken eyes were sobered as they fell to the 13th and the 14th verse. Reading this, let us behave properly as in the day. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. And it was then and there that this future great theologian was born again, where he passed from death to life, where he was given a new heart with a new mind and new desires. Many of you know this man. This was Aurelius Augustine, also known as Augustine of Hippo or Augustine, as we like to say in America. That's what happens when we toye lege, when we take up and read. When the word of Christ dwells richly within us, we are able to teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our heart to God. If our delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it we meditate day and night, if we call out for insight and raise our voice for understanding, if we seek it like silver, and if we search for it like hidden treasure, then we can be confident that we will present ourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Amen? Amen. So this morning, take up and read. Open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Last week, we continued in our series of last things, focusing in on, well, perhaps a Mother's Day first, the abomination of desolation. And this was a watershed moment, right? Being the primary event that splits the tribulation in half. It splits the seven years in half separating what might be known as the tribulation from the great tribulation. And we did something of a deep dive into the timing of this, how we come up on with seven years, how we come up with the three and a half years. And we beheld, what did we behold? The 70 weeks in the ninth chapter of Daniel, being one of the most glorious messianic texts in all of Scripture, wasn't it? Giving us perfect detail, the amount of time, between the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the crucifixion of Messiah. What an incredible testimony to the authenticity of Scripture, down to the dot. And leaving us with seven years remaining for God to accomplish what he intends to reveal in Daniel 9, verses 24 and following. And it is those remaining seven years, that difference, remember, between 483 years and 490 years that we spoke of at length last week, that we turn our eyes to Jesus' Olivet Discourse. And we saw in Daniel 9, verses 26 and 27, the covenant of peace that the Antichrist is going to make with Israel for a period of seven years. 
And yet halfway through that seven years, as stated specifically in Daniel, the Antichrist is going to break that peace. And how will he break that peace? By walking into the temple of God, the the newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and there claim that he is God. By commanding all to worship him, along with his false prophet, who we read about extensively in Revelation 13, he will cause all to bow down and worship the beast. We explored how this world will go from mere adulation and from following this charismatic leader, from going from that to all-out worship. With the Antichrist seeming to miraculously recover from a fatal wound, seeming to heal miraculously, to even be raised from the dead seemingly miraculously. We read about that as well in Revelation 13. It will be that incredible feat that will cause all the world to bow down and worship the beast. We took a a moment last week as well to address a view known as preterism as well. The view that everything we read in the Bible is historical, that that nothing is future, that all has already happened and been fulfilled. It believes and teaches that the book of Revelation is merely a symbolic picture of of first century conflicts, that it's not a description of what is to occur in the end times. Preterists would teach that everything Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse was already accomplished and fulfilled in and by 70 A.D., with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. They would teach that Jesus' return is not physical and bodily, but that it's a spiritual return, and that the promised resurrection of believers has already occurred. Of course, in order for this to be correct, all that Jesus has spoken of in our Olivet Discourse would have been accomplished primarily with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., Well, we learned a great deal about the Greek leader Antiochus as well, didn't we? How his actions in the year 167 B.C. are considered by some to be the abomination of desolation. And of course, Antiochus did desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. He set up an altar dedicated to Zeus that was built atop the altar of of burnt offerings. And he then proceeded to sacrifice a pig on that altar. And he slaughtered Jews and he sold them into slavery. He forbade circumcision. He required Jews to sacrifice to pagan gods and to eat pig meat. He did many awful things. Not that there's anything wrong with pig meat. All right, but we cannot consider this the prophecy in Daniel fulfilled in Antiochus for many reasons. The first and most obvious being that Jesus says in our text, when you see the abomination of desolation... You may know the template of what to expect, but it is yet future. Antiochus commanded the worship of Zeus. Scripture tells us the the Antichrist will command all to worship him. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4 tells us as well that this is future. It tells us what the Antichrist will do in the temple of God. And finally, we can reject a complete historical fulfillment of Jesus' words in the Olivet Discourse, in light of last week's verse, verse 14 alpha, 14a, excuse me. All right, and what Jesus says next, what does he say? But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. It's not let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's not let the hearer hear. It's let the reader read. Meaning Jesus' disciples were not the target audience of what he was saying. In order for the reader to read, something has to be written. This is future. Whether one simply wants the book of Revelation to corroborate, that was written in 94 to 96 AD, still after Jerusalem was sacked, or the compilation of the entire canon of scripture, either way, let the reader read. And not only read, But the expectation is what? That the reader would understand. Understand. The saints of Lanesville 2023 understand. The Jews of Israel during this time understand. The tribulation saints, those saved during this terrible time, let them understand. Thus we aim for that. With all humility, these are difficult subjects. But our Lord has given us an expectation that we can indeed understand. So today, if you will have noticed our title for today's message, 
and perhaps thought, wow, how odd a title. (laughs) What on earth, what on earth does Islam have to do with end times? What does a false religion have to do with the study of Christian eschatology and of the Olivet Discourse? Given that Islam is a false religion, most Christians think that this religion has nothing whatsoever to do with biblical Christianity and certainly nothing to do with the manner in which God will judge and cleanse the world. The answer, as we will see, is that Islam has as much to do with the end of days, has much to do with the end of days as revealed in Scripture. In fact, one could go so far as to say that we cannot have a clear vision, a complete vision of biblical eschatology until we understand the incredible role that Islam will play. Now still, in order for us to move forward, sometimes it requires us to go back. In this case, to go way back. Back to Genesis. If one were to look to the 16th chapter of Genesis, you would see there the story of an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Hagar was in service to Sarah, the wife of Abraham, or Abram. Many of you know this story of Sarah being unable to conceive despite Abraham receiving a promise from God back in Genesis 12. And coming from a a place of impatience and fear and discouragement, discontentment even, Sarah tells Abraham to lie with Hagar. So Abraham commits this, this sin at the behest of Sarah, and Hagar becomes pregnant. Now despite this being Sarah's plan to begin with, Well, once she sees Hagar starting to have a belly, she starts to get jealous. And Sarah treats Hagar terribly. She treats her so badly that she runs her off into the desert. And it was there in one of these desert banishments that an angel came to Hagar. And the angel told her something about her coming son. And the angel of the Lord told her, you shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. That's quite a prophecy. One that would sadly come true with shocking force. Well, 14 years later in Genesis 21, a son is finally born to Abraham and Sarah And as you know, his name was Isaac. Some years later, as both boys grew, Sarah witnessed Ishmael taunting and mistreating Isaac. Of course, Mama Bear was having none of that. So she went to Abraham, Genesis 21.10, and she said, Get rid of that slave woman and her son. For the woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. So what does Abraham do? Again, he kowtows again to his wife's demands, and he sends Hagar and Ishmael packing into the desert. Well, eventually the water and the food run out, and Hagar places Ishmael under a bush to die. Once again, the Lord comes to Hagar and says, go get the boy. I'm going to make a great nation out of him. Now understand, the word great does not mean good. Right? The Hebrew word for great, gadol, it simply means large in number and intense. Now there in the desert, Ishmael and his mother lived. And thus their offspring, their people, would be birthed and bred as a people of the desert. They would be wild men whose hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he lived in hostility toward all his brothers. Now, as many of you know, the splitting of Isaac and Ishmael, the, the driving of Ishmael to the desert, would be the birth of the greatest, most murderous hatred ever conceived and wrought in the hearts of men. Isaac, of course, being the patriarch of the Jewish nation, the first Jew to be born a Jew from Jewish parents. That is the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Jewish people. Ishmael, on the other hand, birthed of a desert-dwelling people, a people of strife, of hostility and war, known as the Arab people. 
Ishmael is hailed by the Muslims as the father of the Arabic people. And of course, history has revealed the longest lasting and most intense hatred between a people group ever wielded. It has given the slaughter of untold numbers. Even today, one can check the news to see how many rockets have flown from Arab-held lands into Israel. Ishmael battles Isaac, and Isaac returns in kind. Hundreds of years later, after Ishmael and Isaac, an Arab man of war and religious zeal came upon the scene, there came another man upon the scene named Muhammad, claiming to be of the direct lineage of Ishmael. And claiming special revelation from God, he gathered a large army and he made war. And he sought to conquer and kill as many Jews and Christians as he could, being, of course, the founder and worshipped as the high prophet of Islam. Now, today, Islam is far and away the fastest growing religion and political system anywhere in the world. The number of Muslims worldwide now tops over 2 billion. According to Pew Research, by the year 2050, Muslims are expected to top 3 billion, or 30% of the entire global population. As revealed in their own teachings, they desire to use their birth rates as their primary driver to take over all non-Muslim nations. And with an average birth rate that far exceeds what one might consider the, the Christianized West, the math is pretty clear. And they are a dedicated peoples. Their young are taught every word of the Quran from their youth, even down to the cartoons that they, play, that they produce. In places like Arab Palestine, the children are taught to hate Jews and infidels, non-Muslims, as pigs and dogs. It is instilled in them from the time they can understand words. Now, with history and hindsight as a clear guide, the prophecy of the angel given to Hagar in Genesis has been tragically true. It is not hatred or bigotry to acknowledge the truth of that prophecy. No ideology, no religious or political system has wrought more death and destruction than that of Islam, though atheistic communism is giving them a run for their money. It's the same spirit. It's the same spirit. In fact, the very name Islam means submission. Not only that they live in submission to Allah, but that they bring the entire world under submission. But this has not been, nor will this be, done through evangelistic means. When Muhammad would approach villages during his reign, he would come offering peace and security if all would convert to Islam in the town or village. If you refused, it was instant death. All were brought under the submission of Islam and the law of Sharia. Citing the Quran, verse 929, it commands, quote, Fight those who do not believe in Allah, or in the latter day, and do not forbid what Allah and his messenger have forbidden, and who do not adopt Islam, even if they are people of the book. Fight until they humbly pay the jizya, and have been subdued, close quote. By the way, people of the book, that's what Muslims call Christians. That's you and I. You and I are people of the book. I'll gladly take that title. Today we are going to see the incredible role that this ancient rivalry plays in the coming tribulation. And this should not be a surprise. With a population that will rapidly overtake all others and having been spawned from the very bosom of Abraham, we should expect to see this massive religious and political system play a key role. With the stated goal of many Islamic organizations and countries being the wholesale destruction of Israel and of the Jewish people, it's not much of a leap. Even as we look to a time where the great and final battle will occur on the plains of Megiddo in Israel, where her enemies surround her, and will be so many that only God can protect her. That begins to very quickly focus our lens. But we have very much to see this morning, so let us open with our text, saints. Mark 13, 14b through 18. Mark 13, 14b through 18. Then those who are in Judea 
must flee to the mountains. And the one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it might not happen in winter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are in a wonderful place this morning, Lord, that of being a needy people. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to teach us. We need you to guide us. We need you to till the fallow ground of our hearts, Lord, that we might receive, that we might be ready, that we might be joyful warriors, Lord, for all that will come. Lord, knowing that you are building your church, that we are the church triumphant in you. Lord, we thank you for all this. We ask that you would keep us alert, awake, to hear all that you would say. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, a few years ago, I was finishing up my last semester of seminary over in Israel. And it happened one day that we drove toward the north into an area known as the Golan Heights. You've heard of that. And this particular area was known as Ronan. And in a bit of a surreal moment... There I stood right on the exact border of Israel and Syria. Just a few stone's throws, just a stone's throw from where I stood was a very large hill. And it was only a few months prior to that that the black flag of ISIS flew on that very hill. One could have watched war before your very eyes from this spot. Now, ISIS made a name for itself as it took up the mantle of Muhammad. They were approaching villages and towns offering what? Peace and protection if you would convert, or instant death if you would not, as commanded by their holy book. And thus, as this group scorched its way through many areas, when word would come to towns and villages that ISIS was coming, the people would flee. They would get up and they would run. ISIS caused mass displacements, abductions, forced conversions, mass executions. And this occurred at a place so close that you could clearly see it standing right on Israeli land. Well, it was just such an entreaty that we see in our text today. Beloved, as an overview, the takeaway for these five verses put very simply is this. When you see the abomination of desolation, run. Don't walk, run. Of course, the abomination of desolation is the Antichrist marching into the temple with his army, proclaiming himself to be God and commanding the worship of all is going to happen right there. It's going to happen right there in Jerusalem. And thus, the most immediate threat when this occurs, right, as this ushers in the second half of the tribulation, now the great tribulation is going to be to who? To the Jewish people. And let us remember, beloved, as it relates to Israel, one of God's purposes for the tribulation is the conversion of the Jewish remnant to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. There will be a revival in Israel, and it will begin in Jerusalem. We have God's word on it. Still many will be slaughtered, but a remnant will be saved. And it's likely those who are heeding this warning. And they run like the wind. How many will that be, you may ask? How many will be saved? How many will heed the warning and run? Well, our thanks to Zechariah for telling us. Zechariah 13, verse 9, he reads, And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name. And I will answer them. I will say, there are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. So we see about one third of Israel will be the remnant that turns to Messiah by the end. It is likely that one third number to heed Jesus' warning in our text this morning. If you are Jewish and you stay, you will be killed. Those are the Jews that are not heeding the call of Messiah. Thus, they are not reading and heeding the very exhortation that Jesus gives. 
But those who Jesus is saving, elect Jews, will heed Jesus' words. They will flee for safety when they see this event occur. Now, our text requires us to lay this out to appreciate the intensity of needing to flee. And as you're beginning to see by whose hand this intense hatred will come. Does Satan hate the Jewish people with an especial hatred? Yes, he does. Satan hates, hates all that God holds precious and dear. We have seen that manifested through history, even up through the evils of the Holocaust. There, have, there has always been a demonic element of intense hatred for the apple of God's eye. And it will be no different in the end times. Today, no one holds more hatred for the Jew than Islam. And it is as ancient as Genesis. And yet, as we will see, what was wrought in Genesis between Isaac and Ishmael will be brought full circle in Revelation. Now, before we look closer at the incredible mechanics of Islam in the end times, there are first some principles that we must grasp. Beloved, understand that when Satan is portrayed in Scripture, we see a number of descriptors. First, we see that he is a liar. Jesus called him the father of lies. We often see that he's presented as an angel of light in his deception. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Meaning that his greatest goal and greatest evil will not be to promote something that has no resemblance of the truth. It will be to co-opt it and get as close as you can to it. Don't get as far away from the truth as you can get. Get as close as you can. In fact, in appearing as an angel of light, Satan has sought to combat Christianity, not by attacking her, but by making a counterfeit so close to the real thing that people won't even question it. Don't attack the church. Join the church. Take her down, not from external attack. Take her down in the pews and the pulpits. In the words of Spurgeon, Spiritual discernment is not knowing right from wrong. It's knowing right from almost right. Rat poison is 99% sugar, 1% poison. Part of understanding the works of Satan in the world, the works of Satan in widespread false religion, the largest and deadliest being Islam, is to understand that Satan is a counterfeiter. Augustine, who we learned about in our opener, called Satan Simeus Day. Simeus Day, which means the ape of God, meaning that Satan mimics God. For everything that is true, Satan has a lie. Satan has a parallel kingdom pound for pound. He has a knockoff. Everything that God has designed for his kingdom, Satan has made a counterfeit. Satan has his own church. Revelation 2.9 speaks of what? The synagogue of Satan. Satan has his own dark ministers who bring heresy and destruction. Satan has his own false Christs, false prophets, false teachers, false apostles. He even has his own systematic theology. Paul refers to this as doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy 4.1. And of course, Satan has a counterfeit gospel. Another gospel, Paul tells the Galatians than the one we preach to you. So, beloved, if Satan has all of that, how many of you think that Satan has an eschatology? How many of you think that Satan has a counterfeit of the end times? Would you like to know what it is? What a cliffhanger, right? See you next week? No, I wouldn't do that to you. Of course he does. Satan is Simeus Day. He's the great counterfeiter. In God, all is light. In Satan, all is dark. He's going to have a counterpoint at every point. If we have a Christ, he has an antichrist, as we are about to see. Now, to do that, beloved, we must look to the eschatology of Islam. We must look to the largest false religion ever in history, a third of the earth. The most deadly, as predicted by prophecy, spawned all the way from Genesis. And there we will see a doctrine of demons. Remember, as we go in, Satan has a counterfeit for everything that is true. If we look to the writings of Islam, 
mainly the Quran and the Hadith, we see a very robust eschatology. We have a thorough teaching given on the end times. Now, to make it very simple for us, we're going to boil their eschatology down to three persons. And as we go through it, something very remarkable will appear. Well, the first and the most important person we read about in Islamic writing and eschatology is a person known as the Mahdi. The Mahdi, also known as the 12th Imam. The 12th Imam. Now, in Islam, there have been 11 Imams, meaning Imam means teacher up to this point, and the 11th gave birth to the 12th. But the 12th, according to tradition, escaped persecution as a child. And he's basically been wandering in the mountains this whole time, waiting to come back. But this Mahdi is the long-awaited savior of Islam. And when he comes back, he's going to set all to right by slaughtering the unbelievers, the pigs and the dogs, as they call them, the Jews and the Christians. All who will not worship Allah will be slaughtered by the Mahdi and his army. So the Muslims have a savior that they are waiting on that comes to bring vengeance on the unbelievers. And how is he going to do that? Well, their writings say that he will set up a global, worldwide Islamic rule from where? From the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. He's going to establish his throne in Jerusalem and pronounce death upon all who will not worship him. What did Jesus say in our text? When you see this, run. And Muslims are actively looking for him. If you talk to certain stripes of Muslims, they will say in their conversations to you, glory to the 12th Imam, glory to the Mahdi. They'll close their conversations with that, glory to the Mahdi. They have a savior that is returning to establish a final worldwide Muslim caliphate. And these massive armies, guess what they'll carry? They'll carry black flags as they go and fulfill the Mahdi's demands. And on these flags will read the word punishment. Do you ever wonder why all the ISIS flags you saw on TV were black? Do you ever wonder why the Revolutionary Guard in Iran uses all black flags? It's all religious. It's all in preparation for the return of the 12th Imam. And what will it take to get the Mahdi to return? What's it going to take? In a word, chaos. The world has to be melting down for the 12th Imam to return. This is why, getting a why the Shiites in Iran are so keen on getting a nuclear weapon. It's not for self-defense. It's to unleash chaos in order to usher in the 12th Imam's return. This is well publicized. It's just not widely known in America. Every person on the street in Iran knows this. Amir Moezi, he was writing about Iran's ultimate role in end times history. He says that according to the highest government authorities, the role of Iran is to provoke a nuclear holocaust and pave the way for the Mahdi to establish Islam. To, a quote, it, to quote its original purest message, reveal the obscure secrets of the Holy Quran and make Iran's Shiite brand of Islam the entire worldwide religion. With the Mahdi's return, the whole world will be brought into submission. Isn't that something? And when the chaos erupts and the Mahdi returns, guess how he's returning? Oh, you can never guess. On a white horse. If you think back to the war in Iraq, those incredible pictures of Saddam Hussein's palace. You still remember seeing those pictures of Saddam? What was he riding on? A brilliantly white horse. Now, even though he was a Sunni Muslim, those were messianic pictures. He actually thought he was Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, Scripture shows white horses two places in Revelation, and that is incredible. Why? Because Scripture now shows us both where the terror is going to come from and what the counterfeit is. Isn't that amazing? Islam, Islam tells us that the Mahdi is coming back on a white horse. Revelation 6.2 reads, and, look, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering 
and to conquer. Conquering, submission, that is Islam. Now there's the truth from scripture about where this comes from. But it also reveals the counterfeit. Who is actually returning on a white horse? Jesus Christ. If you're not putting it yet together, Islam's Messiah is scripture's Antichrist. Here's where it's going to get even more interesting. According to Islamic writings, when the Mahdi comes, he'll have great power and he'll perform great signs. He'll have great creative powers over the weather. He can bring rain or sunshine. He'll bring enormous earthly blessings. He'll cause all to love him. All will serve him because of his amazing abilities and blessing. And what else does Islamic eschatology say about what the 12th Imam will do when he comes in power on a white horse? Listen to this, saints. Islamic writing, he's going to make a peace pact with the Western powers and with Israel for seven years. Speaking of the relationship of the Mahdi with Scripture, Dr. John MacArthur writes, quote, He will come out of a crisis of turmoil. He will take control of the world. He will establish a new world order. He will destroy all who resist him. He will invade many nations. He will make a seven-year peace treaty with the Jews. This is their writing. He will conquer Israel and massacre the Jews. He will establish Islamic world headquarters at Jerusalem. He will rule for seven years, establish Islam as the only religion. He will come on a white horse with supernatural power. He will be loved by all people on earth. If that sounds familiar... This is a precise description of the biblical Antichrist absolutely step by step by step. The Bible's Antichrist is their Mahdi, close quote. Oh, there's more. There's so much more. We have Satan's counterfeit for the Antichrist, don't we? What does Scripture say will come alongside the Antichrist? Well, the second beast in Revelation 13. Who is that? That's the false prophet. Remember him from last week? He makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Beloved, if scripture has a false prophet coming in the end, so will the simiest day, the mimicker of God. If the biblical antichrist is the Muslim's Mahdi, who then is is coming with the Mahdi? Who's coming with the Mahdi? Who then will come to perform for the Mahdi in Islamic eschatology what the false prophet will perform for the Antichrist in Scripture? Lean in, pay attention. You'll never guess. The one who will come and will cause all to worship the Mahdi according to Islamic writing, Jesus. Remember, Jesus is a great prophet in Islam. He didn't actually die. He was taken to heaven like Elijah, and he's going to come back again to serve the Mahdi. Do you realize that you could tell a Muslim that Jesus is coming back and they would agree with you? They'd absolutely agree with you. And why is Jesus the prophet coming back? Again, Dr. MacArthur writes about this. He's a prophet and he comes back and he has one purpose when he comes back, and that is to assist and aid the Mahdi. Jesus returns, listen to this, as a radical Muslim. He comes back as a radical Muslim. He will arrive, by the way, at a minaret near Damascus, and he'll come back holding the wings of two angels who flew him down to meet the gathering army of the Mahdi in the east, the army of the black flags. Jesus, when he comes back, will pray to the Mahdi, who is greater than he. He will acknowledge the Mahdi as his Lord. He'll make a pilgrimage to Mecca. He'll worship Allah, and thus he'll lead all the Christians who will follow him to reject their notion of Jesus and accept the real Jesus, who's nothing but a prophet and a man. 
He'll establish worldwide Sharia law. He'll become the greatest Muslim evangelist, and he will be the final witness on the judgment day against non-Muslims. Christians everywhere will affirm that they were wrong, that the gospel is wrong, the New Testament is wrong. He didn't die, he didn't rise, he isn't God, he isn't the Son of God. Jesus himself will come back and point out how wrong we've been. He will correct all the misinterpretations, all the misrepresentations. And then this Jesus will die and he'll be buried by Muhammad. But not until he has destroyed Christianity by revealing who he really is. Who is this Jesus the prophet? Who is he? You compare what he does to the false prophet in the book of Revelation, chapters 13, 16, 19, 20, referring to the beast coming out of the earth, the false prophet who aids and abets the Antichrist. He is, just as the Mahdi is, the exact replica of the Antichrist. The Jesus Jesus prophet in Islam is the exact parallel to the false prophet who aids and abets the Antichrist. Is your head spinning yet? There's more. We said we're going to split this into three easy chunks. First, we have the Mahdi, who parallels the biblical Antichrist perfectly. Then we have the prophet Jesus, who parallels the prophet of Revelation perfectly. One more, our mimicker, our father of lies, our counterfeiter. He also needs someone to fight at the end, doesn't he? He needs someone to fight. They'll need an Islamic Antichrist. They'll need an Islamic Antichrist. Someone to have a final battle with. Muslims call this great deceiver the Dajjal. And it will be the job of the prophet Jesus to kill the deceiver. Well, guess what the Islamic Antichrist comes riding in on in Islamic writing? The Antichrist of Islam will come riding in on a donkey. On a donkey. And what makes him the great deceiver, according to Islam? What is it about this man that makes him so deadly that the prophet Jesus must kill this man in a final battle? This one coming in on a donkey? He also claims to be Jesus, but he claims to be the Son of God. And he has led millions astray through his false declaration of deity. Given that the primary duty of the prophet Jesus when he comes back is to tell the whole world that he got that everyone got him wrong, that he's actually a radical Muslim, he must kill the one who claims to be the actual son of God so that he can deceive no further, so that all praise can go to the Mahdi. Islamic eschatology states there will be a great battle between the prophet Jesus and the one claiming to be Jesus, the son of God. Their writings read, quote, The army of Satan will be led by a person who will claim to be Jesus Christ. Close quote. So the Muslim Jesus is going to fight the real Jesus and establish Islam forever. Hear Satan's eschatology. You're listening to it. According to the doctrine of demons, the Jesus of Scripture, who claims to be the Son of God, is the Antichrist. And their Antichrist is our Redeemer. Truly remarkable. And finally, if we look to Ezekiel 38, you may turn there if you like, but I'm just going to reference it. We see the theme given to us right in the title of Ezekiel 38. It reads, The Prophecy of Gog and Future Invasion of Israel. That's the title. Now, we don't have time to do a deep dive into this chapter. I would encourage you, really encourage you to read it this afternoon. It's truly incredible. It would take us a month to unpack Ezekiel 38. And here we see a building of a coalition, a coalition of nations who will join the Antichrist in invading Israel. It talks about the hatred that wells in their hearts for Israel. Here they live in peace and security. We are going to attack. And yet what's applicable for us this morning in this coalition of nations, these these eight areas that will join the Antichrist, every one of them is Islamic today. Every single one. They form nearly a complete circle around the nation of Israel. 100% Islamic. Persia is even mentioned. Persia is modern-day Iran, which we already spoke of briefly. 
You can read about these eight nations again in Revelation 17. There's so much there. Nations that would be glad to wipe Israel off the map if given the chance by their own admission. And indeed, their own writing confirms this. I read here from the Hadith, book number 41, speaking of this time, quote, The last hour would not come unless the Muslims will fight against the Jews and the Muslims would kill them until the Jews would hide themselves behind a stone or a tree and a stone or a tree would say, Muslim or the servant of Allah, there is a Jew behind me, come and kill him. Close quote. This is their writing. So here, Jesus' words from our text, they make sense. When you see the abomination of desolation, run. Don't walk. Don't even grab your coat. Pray that you're not pregnant or nursing because you need to run. Pray that the weather not hinder you, verse 18, because you need to run. Every Christian village in Syria, for example, and yes, there were many, were, were many, over the last 10 years, who has had the messenger arrive into their road telling them that the black flags of ISIS are coming, can read the words of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse and understand perfectly. Flee. Run. And now we understand why. In Jerusalem, in the very heart of Israel, from the Temple Mount, who and what hate the Jews so mightily to cause this sort of intense reaction that they need to run? Yet we know what happens. We've seen God's provision and protection that will come for Israel against all odds. It has been her future. It has been her past since the beginning. And today she is perfectly surrounded by an Islamic enemy. You may remember God's promise in that day, Zechariah 12. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's the truth. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace. Listen to this, beloved. And of supplication. And they will look on me, whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him. They will mourn for him. They'll look upon their Savior and mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. You catch the beauty in God's protection there. Not only is he going to spare Israel from annihilation, but God is going to use the crushing weight of persecution that is driven by the sword of Islam and by all the enemies of God to refine and reveal a remnant that he will save. Who are those who will flee this? Who are those? Those who have been reading their Bibles. Those whom God is calling. Behold the amazing battle plan of God to keep his promise to Israel. And to save a remnant to himself. Saints, understand that Satan is not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He doesn't know the future as God knows it. But he can read. And he can observe just as we can. And he understands the character and the nature of God having lived in his presence. He understands that justice will come. He understands that his time is short. Revelation tells us that. But listen to the saints. In fashioning such a perfect counterfeit that is literally the opposite of everything that is true, the Lord has taken what Satan meant for evil and he's using it for good. Even in his people this morning. We have many in our congregation who served in the military. When there is a battle to occur, it's great, and it's critical to know our own battle strategy, isn't it? It's great to know when and where our victory will take place. But what a nice bonus to capture the plans of the enemy. 
to look at those deceptive plans that confirm and that tell us we're right on target. That's a joy. That's a joy. The presence of anti-aircraft fire is good news. It tells you you're right over the enemy camp. Where is Satan most actively trying to deceive? Where is he committing all his efforts? Well, thankfully in eschatology, Satan worked a little too hard. And he got a little too clever, giving us a nice parting drift. Telling us all that scripture's right on target. It's right on target. Abraham sinned with the slave Hagar in Genesis. And here we are. Behold the sovereignty and the foreknowledge and the planning of God. <laughs> Reminding us, beloved, that no one sits at Harrison Hills on May 21st, 2023, by accident. God is no less sovereign over your life than he is over the immense global affairs. Beloved, the hardships and the pain and the twists and the turns, even the sin, God has used and allowed to place you where you are. But beloved, is Christ is, if Christ is not the joy of your heart this morning, if knowing him and possessing him is not the consuming desire of your life this morning, the door stands open for all who would come in repentance and faith. It is the kind face of the Savior that awaits all who would come. He'll turn no one away. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again, these are hard truths. These are difficult truths. But Lord, in your goodness and your sovereignty, you have allowed us to see what is true. Lord, even where the enemy schemes and plots... Lord, you've already been there. You know the end from the beginning. We ask, Lord, as this word settles in our spirit, that we might be joyful warriors. Lord, going forth this week as those who have been redeemed, that have been bought, that have been sanctified, that have been sent forth under your name, under your banner, Lord, carrying a flag, Lord, we bring the white flag of peace, Lord, that you offer through Christ. Peace that's available with God. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep each one of our family together until we can meet again in Jesus' mighty name.